Yes. Hi, guys. Wow, what a blessing just to get to be all here together. So um, there is so much in these chapters, so we're going to jump in without further ado. But let me first and foremost pray for us, since we're going to learn about seeking the Lord in prayer. Uh, That's where we have to start, so let me pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, Just... For the reminder that when you bring all of us here together to seek your face, that that's your evidence of you seeking out us. So I thank you for seeking out each person that you have brought and ordained to be in this room at this time. And I thank you for giving us this passage. And I ask that you would help us, that you would increase our faith, that we would know you as you revealed yourself in your word. And we would know and have more confidence that you reward those who earnestly seek you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All right, amen. So um, I was kind of pondering all the big themes, trying to see what the big themes are between Jehoshaphat's life and Ahab's life in our passage. And it got me thinking about planning a hike recently. Uh, I'm definitely not an athletically inclined person, but I do like, you know, like moderate hike Uh, So sometimes I'll like look up a new state park and kind of earnestly search alltrails.com and try to learn everything I can about my options because I don't want anything too perilous or extreme, but I want kind of like the best views at the least exertion. So I do all my research to figure out like, okay, what's the outcome depending on which trail I'm going to take. And then once I get there, I cling to those little trail markers with everything I have because I don't want to end up on the like extreme whatever that I saw online. I want to just make sure I'm back to my car in two miles and I'm not somewhere across town in like 12 miles famished and exhausted and half dead. So as I was just pondering my experience of these paths that I have to choose and just wanting to know like what's the outcome, what's the nature of these trails, I started thinking back to God when he called his people to be his own as a nation way back in Deuteronomy with Moses. And I felt like he set two trails before them, two paths of life. One we could call the life, uh, the path of life and good one that walks with the Lord, their creator, in love and harmony with his ways and commands, one that promises the outcome of of greater blessing and goodness in life, all that are found in God alone. But another path we could call death and evil, which is accessed by turning away from his heart, not hearing his call. And this path leads, he says very plainly and very vividly, to perishing, And he warns in Deuteronomy 30, all these blessings, but all these curses that will come if they choose the path that leads away from him. But then he appeals to his people at the end and he says, therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him for he is your life and your length of days. So as we kind of jump back into our passage, which picks up centuries later, we can remember that God hasn't changed. He has consistently sought his people through all these centuries since with the same warnings and the same promises. And now at this point where we're catching up with them, it is a divided kingdom, but 
there's just a really stark contrast right now between Jehoshaphat and Ahab. And I think he's allowing this unique contrast of their lives to show the fate of the paths that they've chosen. I mean, we've been tracking with Ahab for some chapters now, and honestly, I was kind of glad that he died last week, and I was a little bummed to be like, oh, we're back with him again. But he has been infamously wicked. He's rejected God's mercy, has pursued him at every turn. And yet, right beside him in our passage, literally right on the throne next to him, is Jehoshaphat, the king of the south of Judah. And we're going to see lots of missteps that he makes in his life, but yet the word tells us that his life is characterized by seeking the Lord through his word and commands, through his prayers for deliverance, for wisdom and leadership. And I think this week we really get to soak in this like precious glimpse of God's faithfulness to provide blessing and security as Jehoshaphat seeks the Lord. And as we're watching this, I think we could hear the call in the back of our minds to readers across time. Therefore, choose life loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him for he is your life. And I think that's the big truth that we can see in all of these chapters tonight. Seeking the Lord is the path to true life and true blessing. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, wherever they are. Um, We're in 2 Chronicles 17 to start. And I saw three divisions, Chapter 17 on its own, Jehoshaphat seeks the Lord through his word. But we're also gonna see Jehoshaphat seek the Lord's rescue in his error and Jehoshaphat seeking the Lord through prayer in tremendous trial. So picking up in chapter 17, um, as I mentioned, we're kind of not picking up where the story left off, but we're jumping back so that we can see this account of Jehoshaphat in a fuller extent than we did last week. Um, We're gonna see a better introduction to Jehoshaphat and what he's all about. And I think that is beautifully covered in verses one through six. We see that Jehoshaphat seeks the Lord and right away they're telling us, hey, contrast this with Ahab of Israel. I feel like verse four could be kind of like a trail marker saying you are now entering the path of good and life. So let's see what it looks like. In uh, verse three, it says, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father, David. He did not seek the balls. He sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And furthermore, he took the high places and the ashram out of Judah. So we see this phrase repeated in these passages a lot. What does it mean that Jehoshaphat sought the Lord? I think there's maybe three pieces we can notice even just in these few verses. First, we saw that he's walking in the ways of David. Jehoshaphat has the most authority as the king, but he's following God's commands rather than turning aside to false gods like Israel's been doing. Then we're told that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Just like a picture of of this communal relating, uh, the presence of the living God who's with him as they're walking together on the same path in the same direction. And we see what that path is like. It's one of obedience. It's one of courage. 
It's one of true and focused devotion on the Lord alone. So much so that he has the courage to make a stand against all this false worship in the nation and remove the high places out of Judah, which is something we've all been waiting for and rooting for this whole time. Then, I love this part, in verse seven through nine, something very unique we haven't seen yet. Jehoshaphat is using his authority not to push people around to get his own ideas and campaigns ahead, but instead, he's sending out his officials and Levites and priests to teach the people of Judah. He's leading his people to seek the Lord by teaching them from the book of the law of the Lord among all the people. God has given his people his word so that they might grow in knowledge and love and obedience to him. So the Lord has promised from the beginning that he would delight to prosper his people when they turned to him with their whole heart and obeyed his word in the book of the law. And then we see that happening at the end of this chapter. He is just, there's not enough language to talk about how he's growing in might and strength. He's growing in military might. They're bringing tribute. The fear of the nations have fallen on him because of the fear of the Lord. And so he has peace on every side. The Lord is blessing and establishing Jehoshaphat as he seeks him in obedience to his word. And I think that's a main principle we can kind of grab onto out of this chapter, that God gives us his word so that we will seek and find him. I kept thinking, wow, like having this Bible in our hands should every day be a tangible reminder that our God is graciously seeking us. He's seeking us out of all kinds of darkness and sin and deceit. And he's doing it by giving us his very words so that our hearts will be transformed by his spirit. So if you're listening to this right now, you can be encouraged that God is seeking you out and he's giving you his word so you might know and love and obey him and walk in the fullness of life. And that just made me start to kind of ponder, like it is precious and beautiful, all the ways that BSF and being part of this study, all the opportunities that holds out for us to press in deeper to his presence and his power in his word. So let me just encourage you as we close this division, whatever your sort of normal routine is for seeking his word, what would it look like to take one step deeper this week? Maybe if Mondays are usually the first time you ever hear the passage, what if you just read and listened to it, reflected on your commute and soaked in that passage before you come back? Or maybe you pick one day worth of questions and and think about it over breakfast this week and just see See how God blesses you and others in your discussion next week as you go deeper together. Jehoshaphat knew that what his people needed first was to know and love their creator through his word. How has his, he used his word by his spirit to bless and strengthen you? So we've already kind of been uh, introduced to our next chapter in chapter 18. We saw the account with Ahab uh, last week and Jacob and our groups got a chance to really reflect on that. So we won't go through all those details again, but now that we have kind of more background of who this Jehoshaphat person really is and what his character's like, I think there is a benefit of looking at the contrast between Ahab and Jehoshaphat. So we know that God has promised 
realities for those who choose life and good by seeking him versus death and evil by turning away from him. And we see those super powerfully on display with these two kings. We've watched Jehoshaphat be blessed and strengthened by the Lord. And meanwhile, we know that Ahab and Jezebel, his wife, they have sent Israel spiraling into evil and injustice and wickedness. They've killed God's prophets. They've rejected his mercy and his acts of power. They are, both of these two men, on completely opposing paths. So I think we probably should feel shocked when we get to chapter uh, verse one and 18. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. I think we can know that marriage alliances were some kind of like code for they trusted in another human king rather than the Lord. And we're gonna find again at the end of Jehoshaphat's account, he kind of has like a thing for doing this because he does it again with Ahab's son even after he's been through this lesson once before. So we know he has some kind of draw and vulnerability to making these kinds of alliances. And it says that Ahab entices Jehoshaphat to partner with him in his military endeavors. And then in response, for reasons I don't understand, Jehoshaphat's like, yes, total unity with you. Uh, My people are your people. My horses are your horses. He is just seemingly totally on board. Um, And I think if we're like, what is this about? We're probably right to wonder that because later the Lord warns him that next chapter in chapter 19, he sends a prophet that says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out from against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you for you destroyed the Asherahs out of the land and you have set your heart to see God. So we hear in this rebuke, the Lord's just making it plain for us. Jehoshaphat has foolishly tried to merge these two paths with Ahab. He, as one who seeks the Lord, is on a completely different trajectory than Ahab. So this is just not possible. And I think we can really get this feeling in the passage. We have taken a detour from all of the prosperity and confidence and clarity that Jehoshaphat had in chapter 18. And now we're in this interesting scene that involves a lot of risk and confusion and near perishing and judgment. So let's just... We won't be in the details since we covered them last week, but just to name, here's kind of four key differences between seeking the Lord on the path of life versus turning away from him that we can see as Ahab and Jehoshaphat's paths like cross, but then diverge. One is that those who seek the Lord seek him first before forming their own plans. Obviously, Jehoshaphat needs some maturing in this area, because we didn't see him inquire of the Lord before making this foolish alliance. But even as he's with like partnering with the most wicked king who's just going on his own thing, Jehoshaphat knows, wait, first we need to inquire of the Lord. Then we see that those who seek the Lord will increasingly discern and desire truth over lies. We had those 400 prophets that are just uniformly predicting, yes, you'll have victory, you'll have victory. And yet Jehoshaphat does have enough discernment to say, um, isn't there like another prophet of the Lord, like the actual Lord that we could seek and ask? His history of seeking the Lord and obeying his word has like tuned his sensitivity to know these are not the voices of true prophets. 
They're not the voices of my Lord. And then we notice that even when Ahab is clearly presented with both God's truthful warning and the compelling lives that he really wants to believe, we see Ahab seal his own judgment by rejecting God's truth for his own path. Then we see that those who seek the Lord depend on him for help, even within their own mistakes. I still can't really figure out Jehoshaphat's thought process of like, yes, I will accept your plan to dress as a king while you go in disguised. But because of that, we do clearly see Jehoshaphat's salvation in that battle is not by his own cunning. It is by the gracious rescue of his Lord. Even though Jehoshaphat made a really foolish detour from the path of life that he's been on, his God was with him and he was ready to save when he cried out to him for help in that battle. And I think that leads to our last observation. Those who seek the Lord experience abundant mercy and grace instead of deserved judgment. Ahab rejected the Lord throughout his whole reign and it led to the judgment and death that God had promised. Both Ahab and Jehoshaphat in that moment were in a battle they should not have entered. Both of them were in need of rescue. But at this point, their paths diverged dramatically as Ahab was shot at random despite his disguise. It says, the king of Israel was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening and then at sunset, he died. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. And that gets us into chapter 19. And I think one kind of final interesting moving contrast that I noticed, we had seen Ahab, just his wickedness flaring as he's perverting justice in the murder of that innocent guy, uh, Naboth. He wanted his vineyard so he could grow some vegetables and so he had him framed and killed. That's how he was using his power and authority. But here in chapter 19, what is Jehoshaphat up to? He's been preserved by the Lord in battle that he shouldn't have survived. And then now he's been corrected by the Lord. And instead of kind of wallowing in all of that, which I might be prone to do, instead he devotes himself to bringing the people back to the Lord. He's going out through the land. He's bringing the people toward God. And then he sets up just judges over them. And he's casting vision for these judges saying, uh, 19.6, consider what you do for you judge not for man, you judge for the Lord. And he is with you in giving judgment. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. Jehoshaphat knows that seeking the Lord means seeking to glorify him, to honor him, to honor his presence with us in all that we do. So I think a final principle we can learn from this section here is that it is the Lord who preserves us on the path of life. I I took great comfort from seeing that Jehoshaphat's walk in seeking God also included some pretty great and risky missteps. And apparently he was slow to learn because we do see him repeat the same pattern. And it made me ask, and I'll ask you too, do you have patterns or habits that routinely distract or compel you away from the trust and the strength of the Lord? Do you have things in your life that eh, they're not necessarily 
overtly sinful, but are they weighing you down? Are they numbing you to the beauty and the hope and the strength and the power and the purpose that God has? Has the Lord been warning you that, hey, you're on the wrong track somewhere in some area of your life? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to help you, as Jehoshaphat could have done at some point in his story, to turn around and enjoy the blessing that comes, the rest and the strength and the insight that comes when we are in step with his Holy Spirit instead of yanking the chain and kind of straying off like maybe a dog wanting to take a different path than we're walking on. Is there a mess that you've knowingly gotten yourself into? You know what got you there and maybe it's just our instinct is like, I need to dig myself out of the hole and then the Lord can help me. No matter how we got into our mess, as we see with Jehoshaphat, it is always the next right step to seek the Lord by crying out to him for help. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he will be the one who shows you the way forward as you seek his rescue, even from your own error. Okay, last but not least, chapter 20. A lot of people know this is my very favorite chapter, maybe in the Bible, so we might be here another half an hour, but I do, I do hope that everyone gets a chance to really soak in this passage in the discussion and the notes because I think it's just, it's one that he can use to sustain us in all kinds of trials throughout our entire life here on earth. So um, I think in this chapter, we, the, the overarching theme I saw was that what does it mean to seek the Lord in absolute overwhelming trial? Before, up to this point, we saw God had given peace on every side to Jehoshaphat and his kingdom. Um, But then, supposedly out of the blue, he gets word that a great multitude of enemies has come from afar and they're already at En Gedi, which is like here to Winsville or something like that. So they're close. And I just find his reaction in verse three to this news to be so instructive and helpful. It says, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set his face to seek the Lord. He proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah and Judah assembled together to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. They're in the middle of this huge imminent threat, life and death implications. And I think our kind of instinct reactions in those types of great trial moments could reveal a lot about what we believe is reality. Because naturally Jehoshaphat is afraid. But even in his fear, we see his instincts have been transformed. It's not just fight or flight, it's faith. He has invested years of his peaceful, you know, peaceful years of security in seeking the Lord and in growing in him and bringing people back to him. And so now, now that they've hit a threat that could easily just spark mass panic or like super tense division among the people, instead we see the scene of like great unity and focus and humility as they're now gathering together to seek help from the Lord. And what does he do as they're gathering together? He, he prays. He leads them in this, this corporate prayer and I love picking apart this prayer and just thinking like, what if we all helped one another seek the Lord 
in moments of great trial like this prayer. It's so helpful to us. In verses five through six, he acknowledges God's greatness. They have huge, pressing, intense needs. And he starts, oh Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are all power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Regardless of the size of the horde coming against Jehoshaphat, he has confidence that his God is greater. In the next seven through nine, he recounts God's past faithfulness and God's promise to hear and save when his people seek him by crying out in their affliction. Jehoshaphat notes that this story, his story, is actually just a small part of God's story. And he knows that God has promised to hear and save when they cry out in their affliction for his glory. And then only after he's acknowledged God's greatness and faithfulness and promises, then he names the threat that faces them. And he acknowledges the king, he acknowledges before all the people in his kingdom with great humility, he notes their powerlessness against this enemy. Not exactly uh, a common political strategy that you might see from, from leadership. But Jehoshaphat knows the courage of a leader who bows low and empty-handed before an all-powerful God. So in verse 12, we see this posture of total dependence, but with great expectancy. He says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I think it reminds us that on the path of life, there will be many, many times that we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do with the threats that we encounter. Things aren't how they should be, and we don't know what to do. But we always, we always know where to look for our help. And so if you can imagine it, all of Judah in verse 13 is standing in solemn assembly. Their wives, their little ones, their children, they're all beside them. All of them are in grave danger at this point. And I keep thinking like, I can't, the command be still and know that I'm God. That's hard for me just in the everyday pressures of life. But here they're standing in this unified confidence that they don't have to frantically muster their great army. They don't have to make plans to try to flee before the enemy gets closer. Instead, they stand before the Lord. They acknowledge him and they cry out to him. And in this moment of desperate need, the spirit moved, spoke through Jehaziel, a descendant of Asaph. And he says, shocking words, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. If we truly soak and understand that phrase, what a blessed statement, this battle is not yours. It's not to be fought in your strength, but with his. The Lord of all creation has taken ownership of this battle and you only need to show up, stand firm, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And the Lord knows them. He knows their frame. And so he comforts them again in verse 17. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, which I think would still make me afraid. (laughs) But he reassures them, the Lord will be with you. So you don't have reason to be afraid. So they've been given a promise and they're told, okay, go out to the battle. 
They're too big for you. They're far too great, but go out. And what's their response? The king drops to his knees. They fall down before the Lord in worship. There is a great military enemy that's still out there and and they're on their hit list. They're told to walk into a battle scene tomorrow that they could easily just be gone. And their plan is to cling to the promise of their God as their defense. Their confidence is that he keeps his promises and they stop and worship in the middle of this battle. And we see in this account that great humility is the best heart posture to seek the Lord. When we come before him, we come empty handed and we are wise to acknowledge that to first just unload and to realize, I don't know what to do. This, I have no power against this. But yet as we seek him in that space, we're then given the power to walk forward into the battles, clinging with his, to his great promises and his great strength. We come empty handed, but we leave with his power. So the next day, they went out early and Jehoshaphat encouraged his troops saying, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. So they go forward. We see their strategy in verse 21. They walk straight towards this great threat. They're armed first and foremost with praise to the one true God. Jehoshaphat appoints those who were to sing to the Lord, to praise him in holy attire. And they went out before the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And this praise situation is not just a theme song to try to keep the troops morale high. The Lord honored their faith-filled praise and obedience. In verse 22, it says, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men who had come against Judah and they all helped to destroy one another. So I think our final principle that we can learn is that in every battle, every battle of ours, our strength comes from seeking the Lord, seeking him both in prayer and in praise, which is something I need to learn. Because we know that this, you know, the path of life and good, we've been brought into it. We know it has a name, the way, Jesus. And yet this path of life in Jesus is more often filled with battle and with the we don't know what to do moments than it is with circumstantial peace and rest. But I think we can learn from Jehoshaphat that as we seek to know and love and serve the Lord through his word, by his spirit, we will be increasingly strengthened to face our battles and our fears in his presence and by his power and for his glory and praise. So it invites us to think, what's your present battle? Where are you repeating, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. If you're like me in those places, it's going to feel completely against your nature to look to the Lord to keep your eyes on him and then do it again and again and again, especially when we feel like the battle just presses on and we still haven't seen his help or his intervention in the way that we're waiting for. The blessing is we don't seek his face in these battles alone. And the Lord himself is with us in his spirit. And he's also brought us into a family of Christ who can stand with us 
like that great assembly, to pray for one another and to help lift our eyes up from the threat when we keep obsessing over how hard and horrible this is. But we can have these people come around us to look up to the Lord, to fix our eyes on him and his might and his promises. So who can you bring into your battle with you to help you seek the Lord? What would that look like even tonight? How could you share where you need prayer with somebody else? Who in your world needs spiritual strength to endure? Maybe they're challenged because this happens to me a lot. It leaves you with the same feeling, I don't know what to do either. I don't even know how to pray in this hard situation. But what if we made Jehoshaphat's prayer here our own to simply name God's great attributes, to ask him to bring his eternal promises to mind, the ones of protection and strength and the blessing and endurance, the assurance of his presence with us, the fullness of rest that is ahead. Know that as you seek the Lord through his word, he will grow you bit by bit into someone who can commune with him in moments both of great beauty and of great trial. He works in all things to draw his children toward himself. And finally, what would it look like for you to stop in the middle of your next crisis or feel like you're spiraling and devote yourself to giving thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love that endures forever. To recognize that steadfast love endures even in this really hard moment. I think in prayer, I just so often want to just linger in that wallow of the naming trial part, naming my need. But as followers of Jesus, we get to remember our place in his story that each of us was powerless against the power of sin and death and Satan, and yet that battle was not ours. It was Jesus's. We are also called to believe in the Lord our God, to believe in his son and his death that cleanses us from our sin and makes us right with God, that he's the one who rescues us from the path of evil and death and brings us into marvelous light, the path of life and good. And now, although we're gonna keep experiencing the battle, we do know that the victory is his and it is secure. And our job, like theirs, is to stand firm, to hold on to our position at the foot of Jesus' cross and to see the salvation of the Lord on our behalf. So whatever the battles of life are that have you feeling hard pressed, press deep into God's presence and into his word to be reminded of your place in his story And that that includes that nothing can separate us from the steadfast love of Christ. And that he will preserve us on this path of life until the last battle is won, until we're in his presence, healed and whole, and giving thanks and praise to him who is our life. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would would make the truths of these passages sink deep into our hearts and that you would change the way that we approach the battles that you walk us through by the power of your word and your spirit. Help us to learn how to lift our eyes to you, to look to you, even when there's great opposition or trial or threat. And help us to cling to you and your power, to seek your face and to know that you are eager to rescue and save. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.